All right, welcome back to a bonus episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let me tell you what we're doing right now. We're getting ready to uh, release some of the archive that we found from when we were the sci-fi shenanigans. Uh, we're going to get those up there for, for the posts that were brought down. We thought you might enjoy them. Um, and so without further ado, let us uh, let us roll that beautiful... Oh, wait, they're going to sue me. Play it. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi fans. Time for your daily dose of insanity over here at the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions. A place where the sky's the limit, space is a place, and nerds run the world. And without further ado... All right, welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Today, we've gathered some authors from the vast array of modern military science fiction greatness to host a panel on the various facets of the subgenre. Uh, we will list the guests out in alphabetical order, um, but that doesn't mean that's the order of importance because they're all equally important to us. Friendship or something, because they were talking bronies before the show started. That winder guy. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true, it's all true. So in alphabetical order, first we have uh, Jonathan Braze. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners, uh, who you are, what kind of stuff you write, and your experience with the military? Uh, my name is Jonathan Braze. Uh, spent 34 years in, in the military service, four years at the Naval Academy, 30 years in the Marines, retired as a colonel. I was an infantryman, uh, at least when I was a junior officer, then kind of rode more desks as I got older, which fewer and fewer commands. Uh, I write, I've got about 70, 75, 76 titles right now. Uh, the majority are military sci-fi. Um, I'm probably best known for my, uh, my United Federation Marine Corps. Um, I've been nominated twice for a Nebula Award, a Dragon Award once, and I'm a USA Today bestselling writer. Outstanding. And next we have Mr. Richard Fox. Hi, everyone. Richard Fox. I am best known for the Ember War saga, also the Exiled Fleet, and the forthcoming Hell's Horizon, co-authored with the amazingly talented Jonathan Brizzy, who we just heard from, which is a military science fiction story. And I uh, served in the Army for almost 10 years, did two deployments to Iraq, and uh, graduated from the United States Military Academy. And uh, finished my career off. I started off our field artillery, finished off military intelligence after I got smart. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, next is Mr. Josh Hayes. Hola uh, from the Midwest in Kansas. Uh, I have uh, written six novels, uh, four in Richard Fox's Ember War universe, the Terra Nova series. I've written one in the uh, Galactic Edge universe by uh, Nicole and Jason Onsbach, and two of my own uh, in my Valor series. And I'm working on finishing the third up now. Uh, it'll be out next month sometime. And then, uh, then we'll see. I've got a couple options on the table. I might be uh, traveling back to uh, the Terra Nova universe. We'll see. And he didn't tell you, but he spent some time in the Air Force, which is almost like the military. Not quite, but close. 
we've got the best chow and air conditioning 24 7 so <laughs> that's <laughs> true yeah i can't uh, argue next, <laughs> next we have mr scott moon hi i'm scott moon um the books i've written most notably the terran strike marines is in the ember war universe with richard fox I've also done 10 books in the Last Reaper series with Jay and Chaney. Uh, I have several series of my own, including Chronicles of Ken Rowland, uh, SMC Marauders, and whatnot. As far as my military experience, I'm more of a fan. I didn't really think I needed to bring any military experience to this podcast because Jonathan has enough for for all of us combined. <laughs> so, uh, But I do have – I've been a lifelong fan and student of the military – I have 11 years as a SWAT team operator in the police department, and I've done extensive reading and writing in the genre. See, I would consider the SWAT team as close enough. So you're okay a, yeah, maybe a small unit. Closer yeah. than the Air Force. For a while, that counts. Yeah. You get to we didn't always have up. air conditioning. No. <laughs> Do the uh, EOD suits have air conditioning? Uh, the new tins do, yes. Uh, so that's why you did it. Okay. You had the AC. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right. And last but not least is our very own Mr. Chris Winder. Yeah, I'm Chris Winder. I'm an eight-year U.S. Marine veteran, uh, which gives me plenty of people to eviscerate in fiction. Um, I was a communicator, which means I ran switchboards and telephones and spent about four years teaching it in 29 Palms to other Marines. I've got about 25 titles, most of which are short stories or novellas, and mostly I write science fiction. Uh, I've done a little bit of fantasy, and I like uh, I like making sure there's at least a little bit of humor in my sci-fi. Um, and my favorite work so far that I've written is Cyborg Core with Jay and Chaney. Outstanding, nice plug there. So uh, next, we're going to define our terms. I, hey, I have proof. Uh, so, what is military science fiction? Again, in the alphabetical orders, because I can read, uh, Mr. Brazi. <clears throat> uh, military science fiction is closely related to uh, space opera, in my opinion. Um, the difference is that in space opera with something like Star Trek or, or, or something like that, where there may be military aspects of it, military sci-fi is where the military forms a greater part of the universe that you're in which you're writing. Um, it generally follows structures that are um, recognizable to people in modern times. Um, but if, if you have oh, – well, there's a few exceptions where people – where military is, a, is like a background and they don't actually get into combat. But generally, there are forces against forces, um, and it does end up in combat. Okay. Uh, Richard Fox, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I would say that you would need to have a science fiction story with, uh, within a military and car uh, carrying out a story in a military manner, where people who are in the military are doing military things. So if you look at Star Wars, even though it says wars in the cover, and we all know it's science fiction, that would not, I wouldn't call science Star Wars military science fiction. You look at Star Trek, where everyone is on a USS Navy ship and everyone has a Navy rank, but they don't exactly carry out everything in a naval manner. So so you would need to have a military you know, unit doing military things within a science fiction universe. That's how I put it. All right, Josh, you're next. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much the same. Uh, I like the what Jonathan said about the difference between mill sci-fi and then just science fiction with military people. For instance, uh, my Valor series is military sci-fi um, because it really specifically focuses on a small group um, of military. Um, and there's a lot of different things in the genre that you pay attention to when you write it, like technical aspects, uh, tactical movements, all that kind of stuff that are really kind of keystone in the genre. But like my Terra Nova series, that's it's science fiction with military people. It's not, I don't look at it as a straight military science fiction um, series. It's, it's, it's more science fiction with military in it. Okay. Scott, do you have anything to add? Come on. Wow. us with your wisdom. Show them up. Oh yeah. I can always make up something, you know, I got something to throw in there, but I think for me uh, being a huge fan of it, it's, it's obviously something that the military aspect is key to the plot and the storyline in general. Um, it's going to be pro-military. It's not going to be something that's bashing the military. And I think it appeals most often to people who, you know, it's almost like um, it might sound wrong, like fantasy fulfillment or, or something where, where you would like to have that experience. Um, and so that's a, so you kind of want, that's why a lot of people like the, the realism it gets more into the nitty gritty than uh, less hand wavium on the military aspects and the unit structure and some of the way things are done. Now, obviously not, you're going to write a story and people are going to always criticize whether or not you capitalize Marines or not, or something like that. But in general, <laughs> in general, it's going to feel like it at least does justice to somebody who actually has experience will go, this isn't complete bull crap. This is, this is, you know, resembles, how it would be. Agreed. All right. And finally, you, Mr. Winder, do you get upset when they don't capitalize Marine? No. So long as whatever they do is consistent. Because it's, it's military sci-fi is usually set hundreds of years in the future. I mean, it could be, it could be recent and like they're keeping secrets from us, like at Area 51 maybe. But in the future, I mean, Marines might start saying, uh, Yay! Instead of hurrah or something, um, I think it's kind of corny, but whatever. Uh, but but yeah, the only thing I have to add is that I, to simplify it even more, I think military sci-fi is the setting where pretty much all science fiction, you know, in in an expanded universe, not not in a in a tiny little Isaac Asimov story, has military. And if you include military, that doesn't make it military sci-fi. It the main character needs to live military. I think that's the that's the big difference between mill sci-fi and stuff that's not mill sci-fi. So that's my opinion. Uh, throw in one, little, one little aside about the Marines and, and capitalizing. Sure. Uh, the reason it, it has become a thing of pride, uh, but that is not the reason why Marines are capitalized. It is when the uh, when I had to go to uh, the Army school up at uh, Fort Meade for uh, public affairs. And it is because the word Marine is the same as the service. So you capitalize Marines, Guardsmen, uh, Coast Guardsmen, but you don't capitalize Soldier and Sailor. So just just throw that out as a little piece of trivia. That makes total sense. Like the Army, Army is capitalized in. Yes. Rather than just a Army. Right. Okay. Because a Soldier is not called the Army, but a Marine is called the Marine. Yeah. 
Mm. Okay, cool. I'm glad we sorted that out because I'm not worrying about it. (laughs) Zoomies. Zoomies. Right. (laughs) right. In the future. So now that you, we've defined our terms, I went to our fine folks at Wikipedia University to see how they define military science fiction, and here's what they had to say. Military science fiction is a subgenre of science fiction that features the use of science fiction technology, mainly weapons, for military purposes, and usually the principal characters are members of a military organization involved in military activity, usually during a war, occurring sometimes in the outer space or on different planet or planets. It exists in literature, comics, film, and video games. Um, a detailed description of the conflict, the tactics, and the weapons used for it, and the role of military service and the individual members of that military organization form a basis of the typical work in military science fiction. So after, having said all that with what the fine folks at Wikipedia, who we all know are never wrong, uh, have said, do you yeah. still want uh, to stick with your definitions or do you need to change it? John? Huh. No, I'll stick with it. I'll stick, actually, I'll stick with what everybody here said. Yeah. Oh, hey, That's right. We're the experts. (laughs) So does anybody want to change their opinion before we move on? I I would just say that you should have a unit involved, because if you think of Halo, which is someone named Master Chief blowing up aliens. And but that really doesn't quite cross that military uh, science fiction threshold for me because it's just him all by himself. We are not just very rarely where you're doing something alone. Because generally, if you've been thrown out there all by yourself, something is wrong, and <laughs> you ain't going to last too long. I, I think the unit involvement is extremely important. It, it's much. It, that's one of the things that makes the genre so satisfying is those those relationships and the and working as a team like that. So I will say that if you read the uh, the Halo books, they do have the team involvement, but but obviously that doesn't always translate well to video games. So. But but I will agree with that, and we will move on. So the definition mentions that there was a backdrop of war for these stories. Can you have a military science fiction story without the war component? Jonathan? Um, yes, you can. Uh, I just don't think it would be that exciting. Um, you can have, uh, you know, just, just as there, uh, if, if you look at Tom Clancy, uh, I'm not Tom Clancy, uh, the Brotherhood of War, um, uh, the Brotherhood of War books, a lot of them never took place in actual combat, but it described military life and going through the things that, that soldiers um, go through. I, I do believe you can have military science fiction. I just do not believe that the readership, the people who like military science fiction, that they're going to be really enthused about a peacetime novel. Uh, I, I did write one uh, that went back and it had very little combat. It was development of a secondary character. And uh, the reviews are probably my weakest. People thought it needed more action. So I think the people who gravitate toward military science fiction um, wouldn't be as pleased with a, with a book that does not take place with combat. Fair enough. And I, I looked it up while you were speaking. It was Webb Griffin that write, wrote The Brotherhood. Griffin, that's right. Yeah. Webb Griffin, thank you. And he writes some really um, good stuff on uh, World War II. My mind wanders now, but it happens when you have young kids in the house. So I'll call it baby brain. Yeah, that works. What about you, Richard? Can you have a, uh, a military sci-fi novel without the war component? Do you think you could? But you're kind of losing out on a lot of conflict. And let's face it, the military's raison d'être is to go and fight wars. 
And if you invite a reader, here's a story about a military unit who cleans the barracks or, you know, <laughs> out on, on doing d- details for the, the, the course of a month. It might be interesting, but I don't think that's what, you know, that's not why people buy the ticket for that so much. And I mean, could you imagine space match? Yeah, that might be funny if it's just a military hospital doing crazy things, but is there's, but even with space mash, you know, there was a war sending casualties to, yeah. to the hospital. I, I think it kind of, uh, I think it kind of depends on the reader you're trying to reach. Um, like for instance, uh, uh, what's the hell is that Tom Cruise movie? Um, Top Gun. Nope. The one with the courtroom deal. Oh, a few good men. A few good men. So that's basically military fiction. You could write that in a scientific or a science fiction universe and have a military science fiction thriller uh, like that. Um, But you really need to like narrow down who your audience is and who you're trying to write for. I think all of us here are writing action-based military sci-fi for a very specific reader. Um, And so you need to present that story in a way that the, the that specific reader is going to find interesting. I, I think you can write military sci-fi that doesn't have uh, like gal- galax- galaxy spanning wars, um, but you just need to be cognizant of the audience and the, the readers you're trying to reach with that story. It's true. Fair enough. Do you have, that was Josh Hayes. Cause he didn't wait for the introduction. Air force are like that. Uh, Scott Moon, do you have anything to add? <laughs> oh, I was just sitting here patiently waiting for an introduction so I could chime in on, on this part of it. <laughs> like, like follow instructions. Um, no, I think, I think like I said, it's one of those kind of hypothetical type questions. I think you could, but you better be a absolutely brilliant writer. And then my other, my other uh, caveat to that is, is what, why, why? I mean, it's such a, it'd be such a small niche for the genre that maybe if you're, if you're wanting to write something in peacetime, you're really looking for a different genre that might, you might have readers that are a little bit different. All right. And what about you, Winder? Got anything to add? Yeah. I was just thinking, what do war fighters do besides fight wars? They clean such as equipment, picking up cigarette butts, sitting around griping about things, Trying to look busy or training, none of which sounds, yeah, right. Spend, spending money, getting in debt further than they can handle. Uh, none of that sounds exciting. Without without fighting a war, it becomes something other than military sci-fi, or it becomes a sub sub genre. Yeah, and uh, I, th- I think you disappoint readers if if you if you try it. There might be a genre for griping. I think you could have like military <laughs> sci-fi griping. You probably sell some books. <laughs> Yeah, that could get interesting. You might actually. So you're going to write that for us, Scott? Oh, absolutely. I want it. I'll see oh, you tomorrow with, a, with, a, with some outline. I'll just watch his messenger every day. You'll get it. I'd mostly complain <laughs> about why there's not more coy- Yeah, why there's not more coyotes. And then that would be my griping, basically. Coyotes in space. That's got to be a thing. So uh, That's an inside joke. So part of, and if you want the answer to that inside joke, you can visit them over at the Keystroke Medium. Uh, and all that is linked oh, in our nice. show notes. So uh, part of what defines a genre are the common tropes. Are there any that you feel must be included in the story for it to be military science fiction? Uh, Jonathan? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the I, I think – I don't think very many of them have to be. Um, I mean there are a lot of tropes that are used and overused, but I believe the main thing is the idea of brotherhood, loyalty, and dis- the 
ideas of brotherhood, loyalty, and discipline. Um, if you don't have that, uh, you tend to get people upset. I mean, you can you can have the the clueless second lieutenant, or you could have a lieutenant who's who's really on the ball and knows and, and and actually has capabilities. You know, opposite ways. But if you don't have if you don't have the good guys, uh, I, I think you're going to really suffer. I, I did a um, in, in my first series after three books, someone had mentioned the fact that I didn't have that many uh, female characters, and I had I decided to write a, a, a kind of an, a book on the on an aside where my characters were coming in and they were basically they weren't bad. But they weren't. They were on the other side, and uh, they ended up turning out to be pretty good, good people, which I knew I had to have because I was going to write about them later. But a lot of people didn't like that, and I have one review that said, "I didn't read. The, I didn't pick up this book to read where the Marines are the bad guys." I think that was pretty telling, and I've taken that lesson to heart. Okay, what about you, Richard? You know, it's. Th- th- I think. If someone says military science fiction tropes, you could probably rattle off five or six, and uh, they should, probably should be in there. The ones, those first ones you think of, because you're you say this is a military science fiction story. Thou hast best deliver said science fiction story. So they're military science fiction story. So they probably need a taciturn badass at some point, even if he gets whacked two minutes into the movie or into the story, and then the rest of the characters had to flounder around and figure it out. So. You know, if you there's going to be certain elements of any military science fiction story that probably need to be in there. If you say, like, I remember there was uh, a book came out a few years ago. It's called Old Ironsides, and on the cover it had a very you know meaty military looking spaceship on it. Well, turns out it was actually a a detective story uh, set somewhere I think in like a a moon in Jupiter or somewhere. So. You, you you build something as military and science fiction, and then you deliver a detector story. Your reader will not appreciate this. So it's, it's know Ooh. what the tropes are, and sometimes you can turn a trope on its head and you know make that fun. Let's say you've got your uh, your your, your smart ass character who has to become the attacker turned badass at some point. Well, that, that there's an interesting character arc. So you know you could have have the elements, but then combine them as you see fit. All right. That's a good answer. This is why we pay you the big bucks, sir. What about you, Josh? Uh, Well, I agree with everything they've said already. I think um, for, for the military sci-fi audience, one of the things that I've noticed uh, just through my valor series is um, paying attention to when you said it and uh, how you present the technology Um, military sci-fi at its core. uh, The cool thing is the tech that you can come up with. Um, I think one of the, one of the things that my editor told me when he was editing my second book is you have a lot of uh, stage direction. And I said, yeah, that's because that's what the the readers of these books want. They want the tactics. They want the, the cool moves and the gear and all that stuff. Um, One of the things that I learned though, in my valor series is uh, if you set it far enough ahead of the future and then they still use like bullets, some readers are not going to like that. Uh, not all, um, but it's just one of the things that I've noticed um, and and will 
take care to pay attention to as I go forward writing more books is um, if you set it six or 700 years in the future, make sure that you're allowing for that tech and, and, um, and, and presenting it uh, appropriately. Um, like I liked uh, one of the things that, that Richard did in uh, the, in the Amber war, instead of setting it hundreds of years in the future, um, spoiler alert, <laughs> they, they have, a, uh, basically, uh, they, they go into stasis for a while and they come back so that the technology that they're using is, is almost near future technology. So it's not a big leap for the reader to go from near future to like ray guns and teleporters and stuff like that. Um, which is interesting. Uh, but if you have a civilization that's been around for like a thousand years or something, um, you're going to have to adjust and account for that. And then, because the readers will call you out on it and they have called me out several times. <laughs> All right. Outstanding. What about you, Scott? Do you feel like there are any tropes that you have to have to be classified as military science fiction? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think the big thing is reader expectation because they're, they came to read uh, military science fiction for a reason. And so you just need to write that book and you can do it as originally and powerfully as you, as you know how, but there's certain things that are just going to have to be there. Like, like Richard's example about the detective story, you can have an element of, of a detective story in it, but it can't be the, the main focus. So just you're right in the genre um, that you're aiming for. It's the only thing I would say. Okay. What about you, Chris? I think the, the one thing that, that I've seen in in my favorite male sci, sci-fi stories and the one thing I always add is a government that seems either distant, uh, uncaring, or both. And I think I think the reason why that trope is important is is because then you can show that not everybody is like the government. You know, this big bureaucracy machine that doesn't uh, – that's just out to, to accomplish a mission, then you can focus on that the that the characters actually give a darn, especially about each other. And I think it makes it more impactful if you if you remind the reader that, you know, this is war, these guys are out here to do a job. Uh, maybe their government doesn't care, but they do. And so you it, it almost it almost makes the the main the main characters, the war fighters themselves, kind of the, a victim of the system as well. And they're just doing their best. So I I like when I see that in a mill sci-fi story and in my favorite ones that's what I see. So if this I, is a- if I could add something. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. What a, I think it's important too that no matter how far in the future you are, and no matter what the tech is. In fact, I think the farther in the future, it's even more important is that you relate to the current day militaries. Um, the farther you, in the near future, you can stray pretty well. The farther out you get the more alike, even with pew-pew blasters, um, you have to be more similar to today's military. And um, I'm Marco Clouse, I'm sure everybody knows, he, one of his books that was like a thousand years in the future, he decided to have the officers of his Marine Corps have Navy ranks, like Naval Infantry, where the, where the enlisted had Marine Corps ranks. And great book, got great reviews. A lot of people liked it. But there were reviews that, ch- that just castigated him saying, you can't do that. You can't have a Lieutenant J.G. and a gunnery sergeant. Even though the gunnery sergeant's only been around since 1958, uh, and this is a thousand <laughs> years in the future. 
Um, I think people want to have a sense of familiarity with what's going on. Um, the, 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 but they, they do want the fancy high-tech sci-fi weaponry, but they do need that familiarity too. Yeah, that's a good point. I noticed that um, Scott Bartlett in his Mech War series, he had everybody, like the ground fighters, were all using Navy ranks, and it was like seamen so-and-so in the middle of a battlefield just struck me as, I don't know, it just stood out. So I, I can see what you mean by that. So uh, because we mentioned earlier with Scott Moon's um, military-like training with the SWAT team that isn't quite military, it had me thinking, so I'm adding this question on the fly, can atypical units uh, meet the requirements to make a book, military science fiction, so guerrillas, militias, et cetera? Jonathan? Oh, certainly. Certainly. Guerrilla warfare is warfare is the second word. Uh, you can have units. Uh, I've done it. I, I've written that. I'm sure uh, I know a lot of people have done it. It's the fact that you are in, but it's the fact that you're in a unit, like Richard said. Uh, the unit does not have to be the first battalion of the of the Beetlejuice infantry. But if you've got a guerrilla group, a rebel group, or whatever that is acting as a military unit and doing military type things, then absolutely it fits, in my opinion. Richard. Yeah, I, I agree with John. It's uh, it can be a little different. That may, may be a great selling point. If it's a militia, that's you know, um, think of XCOM. If you guys have ever played that, where it, um, sometimes it, in one game you're part of a military organization, other time you're part of a resistance, and it could still work. So I think yeah, you could definitely go with that. Okay, Josh. Uh, no, I agree. I don't have anything else to add. I, I completely agree with uh, Jonathan and Richard. All right, Scott. Yeah, that, that all makes makes good sense. Um, one of my recent books, recent reviews I got basically said the the author is obviously a complete uh, Marine Corps fanboy, and so try and I and the, in that book I was doing a lot of the Marine. Type, I was using that structure for ranks and and organization and things, and so I guess my point is is I was kind of slavishly trying to show some 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 accuracy with that as the best I could and so you just can't please everybody I think that I fell away from the core values of, of like a, of a unit it doesn't have to be the marines it could be one you made it completely it just has to have enough of the of the core aspects you know be a military organization with the mission that's important with the characters uh that you know or have that loyalty and honor and respect thing and and on our, and are heroic in a sense. So, yeah. All right. And so one of the obvious tropes uh, must be the military itself, which we've sort of discussed. So which branch of service do you think future military uh, space militaries will be based on the Navy, the air force, the army, the space force? How do you think uh, that's going to evolve going forward? And this question was inspired by you, Jonathan. So it's appropriate that your name was first alphabetically. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I think, because of uh, uh, just because of what has been written in the past, and then TV shows like Star Trek and things like that, where we have taken to calling spaceships ships, and they become the Enterprise and everything else that lead that that has kind of ingrained a Navy going force into our brains. And if you have a Navy going force, who are going to be the ground units, the Marines, and I think. 
that is why we have gone that way. And since I did four years in the Navy and 30 years in the Marines, I'm darn happy with that. However, <laughs> as we now have the Space Force, I actually, I know it's real because I saw the four-star parking spot over at uh, Randall, at, uh, at Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado. So if there's a four-star uh, parking spot, you know it's real now. So uh, it's there, and that may be shifting things away. Um, now, in my own, I actually enjoy leaving the Marine Corps, the whole Marine Corps thing. And that's why I've written about militias and, and army and, and guardsmen. Uh, I have a book called Conscientious Objector, which deals with that. So I think you're going to find more and more books um, opening up a little bit. And, and instead of sticking with the Navy Marine Corps team uh, in the future. Okay. And you know, it's real also because the uh, Space Force just commissioned their first lieutenants. So. Ah, that's right. The Air Force Space. Academy just graduated. Something yeah. like 80 of them or something. Yeah, I, I saw the article. I'm like, uh-oh. So I, I imagine pretty soon they're going to be grabbing some from Annapolis and West Point as well. But uh, oh, we'll see. Never go that way. Wow. Oh. You don't think? <laughs> All right, well, we, about- we, did. we we had uh, several people from the from our class uh, went Air Force, um, uh, one went Army, and one went Coast Guard. So yeah, it'll happen. So what about you, Richard? Uh, what do you think the future militaries uh, in space are going to be based around, as far as the ties to Earth based militaries? It, it should be anything that that suits your story. So if you're going to have like nightly orders. Have nightly orders, but make them within a somewhat army or Marine Corps you know, setting. So an important part for any any writing, especially with science fiction, is familiar but different. So you give something familiar to ground the reader and different to keep them interested. So if you're going to have Space Marine chapters like in Warhammer Forty Thousand, you know you could you can figure out what the rank what the rank system is pretty easy by figuring out who the chapter master and what the chaplain does and what the librarian does, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. All that still fits into a, a, a framework that your average reader is going to know. So as long as you're keeping your average reader grounded and then give them something new and interesting to keep them interested, you'll be fine. Okay. And next uh, is actually waiting his turn this time. So Josh Hayes. <laughs> I was going to say, yes, uh, 100. I, I think that it's interesting because um, – like ever since Star Trek, like Jonathan said, everybody has used the Navy and then therefore the Marines. Um, but like, I, I like the Starship Troopers had the mobile infantry and, and uh, they dropped down and did a whole bunch of basically army things. Um, but what, uh, what Richard and I did in our Terra Nova series was um, we actually combined um, two different um, rank structures from two different military organizations. So in our Pathfinder core, we actually use um Air Force enlisted ranks, and um, for the team leaders, their warrant officers, which is actually a military th- uh, army thing, not an Air Force thing. Um, and then uh, instead Air of has, uh, Air Force has uh, warrant officers now, oh, what? do they now? They sure do. I did not know that. Uh, wow. Well, at the time, I didn't know that, but no, no, uh, they, they just came back uh, maybe a year or two ago. Interesting. Uh, so, uh, we combined them and, uh, it made sense. And then we, uh, in the air force, the E four is a senior airman and we just changed that to senior voidman and had like a voidman first class, um, to, to, to deal with those little ranks. So that was cool. And, um, it wasn't the straight 
uh, army situation or marine situation, we kind of took a, a little bit of uh, uh, creative license with that. So that was fun, but it, it still made sense in the in the the structure of the world and and the universe. So. It, uh, I think like everybody else said, as long as it makes sense, you can make up whatever you want. And, and it, it makes sense in the rank structure that people will understand. I don't really think they'll care what it's called. All right. What about you, Scott? Yeah, I'm, I'm basically uh, now with what Richard said about uh, familiar, but different. I mean, that's the way to go. And it really just depends on the needs of the story. If, if the nitty gritty details are important to the story, then either do the research or, you know, if you, if you just have that experience then obviously make the most of it. But yeah, I think, I think it, it doesn't, I think it's going to matter so much. I think that the more people that write in the genre, the more you're going to get people that don't have military experience and they're going to be making stuff up. And so it's going to hopefully we'll just see some exciting new things as it goes forward. Outstanding. And finally bringing up the rear, Mr. Winder. Yeah, I think, I think realistically we're going to end up with just army and Navy and they're each going to have the roles and army's going to mainly have transports. Navy's going to be the, the heavy firepower, but yeah, depending on the needs of the story, because, um, I mean, you can specialize army, you can create special units that are basically Marines, but not call them that to to simplify organization of the story with rank structures and, and such. Um, I think that's what's realistic, but we're talking speculative fiction, so it's not realistic anyways. So you can really do anything you want. You, you could have Space Force take everything over and everything in Space Force, so long as it's interesting enough to keep the reader engaged. All right. Good answers all. And if any of the books they've mentioned, just as a reminder, uh, sounded intriguing to you, all of their contacts will be linked in the show notes, including their Amazon page. And they would greatly like it if you go click that little buy button, B-U-Y, buy. They like it when you hit that button. It's like ringing a bell for them. So <laughs> yeah. how ring, my, ring my bell. That's right. <laughs> so how important is it to stay on point with the military uh, ranking, tactics, technology. We covered the ranks a little bit, but how far can you stray from today's norms uh, and still meet reader, reader expectations? Jonathan? <clears throat> how far can you? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, and that is my opinion, unfortunately, you can stray a lot. Um, <laughs> I've read, I was just talking about a book the other day that was horrible. I'm not going to say the name of the book, but it was because it was so far off uh, from a military standpoint, from a tactical standpoint, from a technological standpoint, yet it sold fairly well. So unfortunately, you can stray a lot. I am, I am a, a, a completely the opposite. I, before I did the landscaping in my yard, I'd make sand tables in the backyard. I live in Las Vegas, so you have a lot of sand. Um, and I would time things out. I would figure out what's a rate of march. Um, tactics. I would study up on tactics. I would. Uh, for me, it's vitally important that the military aspect has to be accurate. Now, yes, we're we're doing faster than light travel. Yes, we've got big mech suits. Um, yes, we're fighting alien grubs. I you, I take I understand that. But still, I believe that a reasonable soldier from today put 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, whatever it is in the future facing alien grubs 
would be able to function as a military person. That's just my opinion. Like I said, you can be successful and pay very little attention to it. All right. What about you, Mr. Fox, Mr. Richard? Yeah, I, I think when you're introducing or you're inviting a reader into a military science fiction story, I, what I like to think of myself as doing is I'm, I'm tossing them balls to juggle. So if somebody's like, yes, I like military science fiction, let me step into the Ember War. And then I, if I toss into them uh, giant mech suits, that's not too hard. It's, it's military science fiction. You expect there to be mechs. All right, here's some alien races. That's not too hard. Okay. But if I started to throw, but if I went into a fire control situation and had them, because I used to be an artillery officer, and if I put the reader inside of an, a fire direction center, which is nothing but acronyms and numbers for, 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 for several minutes at a time while other people are doing fire missions, that reader would be lost. You know, giant mech suits, okay. Crystal jellyfish do, talking to your mind, that's, that's easier than trying to give in you know, the, uh, how to do a, a proper fire mission. So when you're going into something, it needs to be you know, graspable. And a lot of people, have, you know, you have a certain military job. Like, let's say you flew an AC, uh, a C-130. You could go down into the nitty-gritty of every single control on that, you know, in, in that cockpit. Or you could just fly the plane to make it along with your reader. So you, as soon as you try to like, deep dive into some particular area, if it doesn't serve the plot, you are losing the reader. So I say, don't do that. So you always you got to think about what, you, what, what does your reader know? What are you expecting them to assume? And then how much are you expecting them to learn to follow the story? So some readers are, are you know, be just all about it, but other people are going to be like, I don't know what's happening. I'm done. So you as the, the writer, you got to be thinking about what you're putting on the reader or what you're, and what you're expecting of them to, to really get to the end of the story. Okay. That's a good answer. Josh. Uh, I going third sucks. <laughs> These guys have really good answers. Uh, I don't really, I don't have anything to add. I, I think, you know, as long as you pay, pay attention to what mill sci-fi is and just respect those readers and what they're looking for, I think you could, you can pretty much do whatever you want. As long as you're following those typical, uh, deals, I really, I don't know. That's about, that's about all I have. All right, Scott. Yeah, I'd just say uh, tell a coherent story that's that, that doesn't confuse a reader and don't be boring. You know, Good that's, those, are the, boring. those are big cardinal rules. Yep. All right. What about you, Wander? You got anything to add? I say follow the rules unless you decide not to, but then have a reason. So you can you can have regular battle formations. Or not, but if you don't, there's you should be able to justify it somehow. Otherwise, a lot of your readers might think you guys are incompetent, and therefore you are incompetent. Good point. Okay. Yeah, as long as you can justify it, everything's good. All right. So, speaking of tactics, how creative should you be with the story in your stories with the tactics? Should the storytellers stick with the current formations as we understand them, or make new ones that take into account the evolution of surroundings and technology? Uh, how close to modern times do you play the tactics, Jonathan? Uh, I actually stick pretty close to modern times with tactics, um, uh, but I, I'm not a slave to them. Uh, tactics will, if if you are using, if you're doing uh, naval bombardment with some sort of energy weapon, 
the tactics of those on the ground or for the Navy, for that matter, are going to be different than if you're using uh, shells. Um, so, but I, I do believe, I mean, there, we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of years of tactics. And I know, I know a lot of people who go back to make military sci-fi and base it off of Roman tactics. And I think it works. Well, if they're a good writer, I, I think it really works. I personally tend to stay somewhat, yeah, I, I personally stay quite a bit with modern tactics, but I change it as the needs of technology or just because I have to get something done. Uh, one of the hardest things to do is that in the modern military, officers don't fight unless you're uh, flying. Um, so how do you get the eyes on the the fight, you know, the, the, the close-in hand-to-hand combat that people find exciting um, when your character has now made it up to general. Uh, so those are things you have to think about. Okay. Uh, Richard. Yeah. I think when it comes to tactics, your reader has a smell test. And if you're going to introduce some new, some new technology and that changes the tactics. Okay. That passes the smell test. But also, you know, you got to be thinking about. I hate to go into fantasy, but if you look at the last season of Game of Thrones, where you had the the assault on uh, the North, and they put their catapults in front of the artillery, in front of their infantrymen, and their infantrymen are in front of the defenses. And you know, if if you've ever played a freaking mobile tower defense game, you know that's all wrong. So, <laughs> yeah. So there was a lot of uh, lay people who who failed the smell test of that episode of game of thrones where they're like wait a minute why is the cartillary piece in front of everything shouldn't it be behind and protected so it can keep slamming the zombies so that's when it comes to tactics pass the smell test for everything and if you can pass the smell test with your reader they'll keep reading and they'll they'll, they'll enjoy it and they help, help the pacing okay josh yeah i think when it comes to um like Jonathan was saying like, or, or orbital bombardments or, or ship combats or something. Um, it's, it's easy to kind of go outside the box of normal modern day thinking just because the, uh, like look at David Weber's, uh, military battles in his later, uh, honor Harrington books. I mean, it was just warships lobbing thousands of missiles at each other. Um, but I, I think when you get uh, to like small unit tactics or or basically um, uh, you know gun battles in a in an enclosed confined space, the tactics aren't really going to change that much. Um, even d- with different technology, it's always you're always going to be looking for cover and concealment. You're always going to be looking for uh, an advantage, whether it's the high ground or um, you know surveillance on your your enemy intel on your enemy. You're always going to be looking for that stuff. So that stuff's going to be the same. And I think the uh, the tactical minded reader that's looking for that stuff um, will see that you're um, attempting to keep them into the story by keeping the tactics correct. But if you go outside the box and you're like, I want to do this. Um, like for instance, I'm having a, uh, a halo jump in, in my last valor novel. Um, but instead of using parachutes, I'm using, uh, some kind of thruster controlled exo flight suit that 
uh, falls off of them once they land. Um, so you can, you can do cool things that are, that are really similar to what modern day military forces do. You just got to put a little twist on them. Okay. Scott. I had to unclick my mic. I was just yelling upstairs. Can, can you stop banging around and being so loud because we're doing a show here? I just texted my wife that about my youngest. <laughs> yeah. Every now and then the volume levels go out the roof in the moon, in the moon base here. So um, what was the question? So how um, close to established tactics of today do you have to be and how okay. far can you stray? Yeah, I, I think you should stay pretty close. You obviously don't have to. Um, you know, and everybody brings a little bit different to it. I really enjoy small unit tactics. I, li- I like some of the big naval stuff from like David Weber and, and those. But going back to what Richard said before is like if I like, for example, if I wrote law enforcement scenes and I went into how it actually is in great detail, most people would just straight go to sleep. Um, so I think you again, it always comes back to whatever uh, moves the story forward is going to be good. But I really do. so. Like I said in the beginning, being a huge fan of the military and not having been able to participate for various reasons, when I see somebody like like Richard or, or Jonathan um, and, and you guys that, that can show me some insight into that world I find so fascinating, to me, that's really valuable. And it's the main reason as a reader, I enjoy it. So I think you should stick to the tactics as long as it makes sense, keeping in mind that, you know, when you're if you're fighting in space and zero gravity, there's going to be some changes. Absolutely. That's about it. And if you want to know the procedural on the cops, and that's uh, something you're interested in that Scott mentioned, uh, just watch the the movie Super Troopers. It's totally, totally how it is. <laughs> it's, it's actually surprisingly <laughs> accurate. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yes. Yes. Very close. Yeah. Especially, right. especially on mindset issues, you know. <laughs> All right. Yeah. What about you, right. Mr. Weiner? Do you have anything to add? Uh, just kind of my answer from last time. Stick with with what's real, unless uh, unless you can justify it. For instance, if you if you say that uh, the enemies planted landmines in this field, there's a procedure for that. Unless the landmines can dig themselves out and chase you, then that procedure yeah, that goes right out the window. Richard. Yeah, it does a little bit. <laughs> i I like uh, I like it when authors do that to their to their characters. You know, especially when you got the you got the stuffy lieutenant or captain who says, you know, we're we're going to stick by stick by the rules. This is the way it's done. This is what I learned in in college, and then all of a sudden everything goes sideways, and it's uh, it's someone else who's got to got to pull them out of the fire because they can think outside the box. Yeah, I love that. I like doing that. All right. So the definition that we mentioned way back in the beginning spoke about the combative combative aspect of the genre. Um, how accurate do you think you have to be with how your characters react to the violence of war? How much wiggle room can you have uh, for a more Hollywood reaction if it services the plot? So, Jonathan? Well, I, I think in real life, you have a wide variety of reactions to combat. There are people who really get into combat. They like the, they have the adrenaline rush. Uh, when they kill an enemy, uh, they are hyped. They are proud. They, they, almost want to have a trophy. And then there are the people who go into PTSD. I mean, this is a whole range of reactions. So I think you as a writer can have a wide range of how your characters react to it. Um, I, I think all, I think pretty much how anybody would react. You now there's the air force flying. I don't know if you could hear me. Air force is flying. <laughs> over. 
I should have called them up and tell them not to uh, not to bother us right now. Sorry about Look, that. We're always screwing with the other services, so it's fine. Hey, well, Josh, you said you were going to handle this. Marine, but I was smart enough to retire outside an Air Force base because of all the facilities. And like at the gym, you know, so right at the gym, you go into the gym and all the heavier weights, they're like brand new. They've never been used. It's, it's, wow. There's a Thunderbird pilot a friend of mine and he never appreciated it when I told him that. To get back to the, to the question, I guess, is I think you could have a pretty wide range. Um, the only thing that I don't like personally in military sci-fi is the is when it it shifts not necessarily from Hollywood because there have been some good movies made, but shift to the Marvel universe. Um, I, I do not believe that military SF should have characters who can you know just swing around and and wipe out a whole battalion with their you know, with their sidekicks or something. Um, but other than that, I, I think you have a pretty wide range of where you could fit you could fit your characters into, into which you could fit your characters. All right. What about you, Richard? You know, it's um, Hollywood does kind of provide the baseline for everybody. And if you're going to get into a little deeper or a little something more gory, you risk the, you run the risk of losing the, the reader because is that for those of us who've been down range, you, you could probably throw in some really awful, awful things that happened to you or people you know and put those into the story. And like the only book I have ever stopped reading was uh, Johnny. Johnny got his gun, which was the uh, inspiration for Metallica song one. And I got to yeah. the point where the, the main character, I don't think he ever had his name, realized that both of his arms had been amputated. And I yeeted that book across the room and I was done with it. Yeah. I had just come off a deployment or I was going, getting ready to go to another one. I was like, that is way too much for me right now. So when it comes to uh, putting in more than your Hollywood standard, realize that it may be too much for some readers who are reading for escapism, you know, for that reader who just wants to not be in their, their house because of the fucking coronavirus with, with all the kids and they just want a couple hours by themselves blowing up aliens. And then you put in your, your favorite character, their favorite character, favorite character uh getting his sucking chest wound treated it might be too much so just know figure out where the line is okay what about you josh uh actually uh, it's interesting because um with my uh valor series i went a little bit closer to um military realism than I did in my Terra Nova series and the Terra Nova series. Uh, it is funny that he mentioned the MCU because, um, and like Richard just said, some people don't want that double amputee, like very realistic, um, story because they, they want the military sci-fi, but they also want kind of the, uh, hero story where it's standing up and cheering, like at the end of Endgame. Um, and in Terra Nova, we did a lot of, um, stuff that, was that kind of uh, homage to that kind of uh, that type of action oriented story. Um, and it, when I started the Valor series, I said, I wanted to write a really serious military story. Um, and it's interesting that the, the Terra Nova series, even though it's strictly 
it's not strictly mill sci-fi um it does better than the the valor series and i get more reviews on um terra nova for the the characters and the, the action scenes than i do for the valor series and so i just think, think it comes down to what kind of story or reader you're trying to get because i've made like in my striker war story i had two povs throughout the whole thing uh this is in galaxy's edge and uh, the number one comment that i get from that book is this book made me cry at the end um and there are some vets that have read it and they're like i, I couldn't like the end just tore me up because it was very personal in a, in a way that if you've dealt with losing a a comrade in battle um, a, a lot of people really take that to heart. And if you do it the right way, then you can get a really positive reaction. But if you do it the wrong way, then you're, you're, you're risking losing that reader. Okay. Scott. Yeah. So my answer has changed about six times as I'm listening to everybody else talk. And it's, it's very thought provoking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so originally I'm thinking that, if you go really gritty and really realistic, you're almost moving more into literary realm. You could be moving into like uh, Johnny Get, Johnny Get Your Gun is or uh, All's Quiet on the Westward Front. Those are basically anti-war books. You know, at least that's how I interpreted them. No, they, and were, so, they were anti-war. Yeah, and so and and that might be exactly what you're going for, but that might not be the same crowd as somebody who wants just escapism. Well, you know, wants to either live vicariously through something that they wonder about or, or because they've had that experience and they had fond memories of working as a team and a unit and, and all those things like that. So I think you just have to just know what you're at, where you're at. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting is like, so in fantasy you have, you have like Brandon Sanderson, Robert Jordan, and then you have George R. R. Martin or uh, just uh, LaCron- what's his name? Abercrombie. And so you have kind of grimdark. And those are two totally different, but there's a readership for both. So maybe there is a place um, for that ultra gritty, ultra realistic um, military sci-fi, but I'm not sure that reader base um, knows that it even exists yet, you know, or like, um, like noir detective, there's lots of different variations. And um, uh, what's, what's the one they recently did the, uh, the Netflix thing. Um, Alter Carbon. Alter Carbon. That's that's super, super dark. It's super graphic. You know, it's definitely not for kids. Um, so somebody that, like, lo- loves Star Wars and Star Trek might absolutely loathe Altered Carbon. Just they're different fan bases. So you, fi- you find the people that respond to what you're writing and do it. My instinct is, is to give enough for the character but not spend your whole book talking about, you know, some of the harsher parts of being in, in, a, in a combat setting. And of course, sometimes if you put what really happened to you, nobody will believe it. So you bend down right at the time your co-driver lights his cigar and it's bending down too, and the RPG goes through the window. It might have happened to your friend Bob, but if you write that in a story, people will be like, yeah, that would never happen. Yeah. So I've had (laughs) editors send that back to me a few times on some of the stories I write. So uh, what about you, Winder? Where is the line between uh, too realistic and too Hollywood? I love leaning into the realistic and the realistic responses because I think I think everybody or nearly everybody will at least act like a badass until the bullets start flying and then you start finding out who the people really are. You know, some of them really are badasses. They they love fighting, they love the war, they love the excitement. You know, they want to go go 
go punch something afterwards, give each other high fives while other guys just completely fall apart. Um, maybe it, maybe it leans a little bit towards literary fiction, but I love, um, I love showing, showing the result and especially showing the people push through it afterwards. I think that makes them more heroic than, uh, than, than the guy who, who's completely unaffected by war. Oh, you know, just, uh, you know, light my cigar and, oh, here comes a bad guy, shoot him in the head, finish lighting my cigar, and um, not a big deal. I kind of agree with you there, Chris, too. I lean into it. Um, And I know that I do tend to play with the nittier, with the grittier side, uh, specifically on on a couple of my books. And my readership will stick with me, but in the emails, they will tell me it was a little bit too much for them. And to get back to Fire Ant or get back to one of my lighter series. Um, I do it as a writer because I just have this need to experiment, I guess. But it is not as well received by my readers when I do that. Okay. So I uh, had a platoon sergeant before I deployed who told me that everybody was Rambo until the bullets started flying. And then all you see are asses and elbows. And I think there's some, some truth in that. (laughs) um so that is that is one of the things that that i think makes it entertaining is when they they show the wide spectrum of how people handle it but speaking of the combat go ahead i would say it's the same in law enforcement you know you you get some some situations where the people you think would react a certain way don't necessarily um you know it's just different you know, being the biggest, strongest jock on the department doesn't mean that when you get into something really nasty and horrible that you're going to be bulletproof. It's always the short ones you got to watch out for. There's something about being closer that's to the true. ground that makes them meaner. So Yeah, that's uh, a fact. Speaking yeah. of combat, we can't, yeah, <laughs> we can't talk about war without addressing the weapons that wage it. Uh, so how realistic do you think military technology do you have to be, and how much of it can you balance against the rule of cool? So. Let's go without further ado, Jonathan. Uh, that is a that is one of my sticking points, I guess. Um, I tend to have basically modern day weapons. Uh, I, I you know I try to you know I try to use uh, uh, mag rings and and things like that. Um, in space, I'm more than happy to use energy weapons, but on, on a planet, uh, unless it's in a tank or something like that. Um, they're not that, uh, you know, they're not that practical. And so I tend to basically just have modern weapons in a new, uh, in a new vein, but I do try to put at least one cool weapon, uh, in, in the book to just give it that flavor. And it's kind of a weakness on my part. I wish I would do better. Um, but you know, like I had a planet buster, which was basically a big old, uh, called a tungsicle. It was a big old hunk of tungsten. But then I gave it to my Naval Academy roommate, who is a physicist and an, astro- uh, an astronomer. And I said, does this sound about right? And he told me if I dropped that on the planet, it would probably break in half. So <laughs> I, had to, I had to cut it down about 10% of the size I had it. But so basically, to, to cut to the chase, I basically use disguised modern weapons with one cool weapon in each book. Okay. What about you, Richard? 
Yeah, I'd like to use whatever military technology is. These are the hooks that tell your reader this is a military science fiction story. Like if they they're in the that opening first chapter that they can read for free on Amazon, and they're reading that and they go, "Oh, these soldiers are in jacks that um are, are big. They're kind of like big walking armor tanks, and they can carry a eight millimeter machine gun and fire it like it's nothing because of the the jack has a giant arm to stabilize it." Okay, that's cool. This is a military science fiction story. Let's keep going. So that's where I like to, you know, introduce that military t- technology to remind the reader it's a military sci-fi story. I'm, you know, delivering what I'm promising. Keep on reading. So, and if you have a story that's about giant mech robots punching aliens in the face, well, gosh darn it, you have a giant mech robot that just punches aliens in the face. Keep going. <laughs> Outstanding. I'd read it. So what about you, Josh? Uh, I like... Well, and like I've said before, I, I kind of uh, in the, the the multiple series that I've written and I've kind of been fortunate where I get to play around with um, really kind of outlandish technology and then really down to earth technology. And I think you, you can you can mix it to a point. Um, I think that if you if you're going um, with kind of a more modern day technology. Uh, approach on tactics you're kind of limited on what technology you're going to use or invent for your story you don't want to make it you don't want to make the the soldier a super soldier like if you're going to give them uh like really awesome power armor it's got to have some type of a flaw or some type of a, a disadvantage um instead of putting you know 30 superhuman power armored troops in a battle against uh your enemy um they've they've got to have some kind of limitations Uh, and i i try to make sure that the the cool tech that i invent has some limitations for instance we had a a macro cannon in the the last book of the terranova series which was a huge massive cannon that just obliterated ships uh the problem was when they tested it it fried the system and they could only use it once um, and so it, it was a cool thing, but it, it wasn't like a, a deuce ex machina. This is going to save everyone. It was a cool thing that helped them, but it, 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 in the end, it had its limitations and it didn't solve all their problems. They still had to do, um, different things to win the battle. Okay. Scott. Um, I think the weapons are, are very important. Uh, so, one there's two different ways to go at this. Like the main thing is I like to have kind of like newer, better, bigger and better gadgets as, as we go through. I think that's, it helps kind of advance the story and I enjoy it, but it can also dig you a super deep hole by the end of a really long series. So that's something to be wary of. And then I also tend to like, I keep elaborate spreadsheets and uh, lists of things but like I have in, in my shorty books that are, are mech warriors in the first episode so to speak he has a sword made from an old because the story takes place on a world that's been nothing but like battle mechs for 500 years and that's all they do there and it's just mountains of destroyed junk that from the fighting and at some point he has a sword made of a helicopter blade and it's really cool and it's a fan favorite but then i kind of forgot that's what it was and then like later on he's like got something a little bit different i have to go back and and be consistent so you know i guess Whatever's cool, but it can't be stupid. I guess let's just let's just say that let's erase everything I just said and say I just don't do anything stupid. That's what I said. <laughs> All right. So uh, speaking of stupid, we've got the marine next. Winder. 
Uh, <laughs> that was rough. Zing. Out. <laughs> hey, there's two of us in here. You better watch out. Um, I think with me, the the weapons are a tool, and unless it's a MacGuffin or or the whole point of the story, you know, trying to trying to track uh, track down the super weapon that's that's escaped. Um, they they kind of take a back seat. I go really light on description. Um, mostly, I show the result. You know, the the good guy pulls the trigger, the brains of the bad guy uh, splatter against the wall, and he drops like a like a marionette just got his strings cut. But I I I rarely list the caliber. Um, I don't list how many rounds the uh, uh, the weapon holds unless it's part of the story because I need them to run out of ammo. And then you know have to think around that or or plan around that something like that. Otherwise, um, rule of cool. I usually save for things outside of the weaponry, so the uh, the ships or sensors or maybe uh, maybe if I do weapons, it's some kind of cool bomb or like those uh, like those landmines that get up and chase you because you you weren't close enough, so they'll go ahead and get <laughs> close to you kind of thing. So I I usually save save for stuff like that, but you know I've. I've written story. I've written a story where where at the very end the editor says, "Okay, now uh, describe to me what the uh, what the guy is wearing, so we can do the cover." I went and checked, and I never once mentioned what he was wearing. <laughs> I had no idea, and the book got great yep. reviews. <laughs> so it's um, I, I think as as long as you include enough information, that's good. But then there's the uh, the the hard sci-fi writers who they need to know all this stuff because their readers expect it. So they, and yeah, you have to keep exact details on everything. And if you, if you, if you go, if you go with a wow factor, it's got to be plausible. And if it's on the borderline, they're going to wonder why. And you're going to have to answer that question. That's basically what I was trying to say uh, earlier, you know, because you get into something, you know, like, and your readers will say, well, why didn't they just use that super weapon? That they had two chapters ago, they could have solved everything. Yeah. They just used a big tungsten rod thing and blown up the planet. I mean, come on! Why did you just fly your ship <laughs> hyperspeed and blow right. the other ship up? Yeah, exactly. Triggered. I'm triggered. <laughs> All right. So, so I'm the opposite. And, and then, want, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. No, go, go ahead. Go. I, I say I want all the details, and I want to know the thread count of the uniform they're wearing. Damn it! Mm. So. That's where, yeah, <laughs> I, I need to know what planet material. it was made on and what, you know, anyway. So um, speaking of those details, what level of details do you think need to be in military science fiction? Uh, do we need to get to the point where you have technical specs for your spaceships, in which case Elon Musk does want to talk to you uh, for the spaceships and weapons? <laughs> Jonathan? Uh, I, I think you need some level of detail to remind the reader that this is science fiction. Uh, however, I do a lot of hand waving. I mean, uh, when my Marines are aboard a ship that goes faster in light, they don't know how it does. They know the name of the drive, but they're not they're not driving the ship. So, no, I don't go into a lot of detail on, on the ship itself. Uh, when you talk about weapons, uh, I write more about the effects of the weapons. Uh, but there's always something I, th- mm-hmm. I think – uh, I, I know in, in one book, uh, the thing I went into more detail was the, um, the communications, their quantum communications. Uh, and another one, it was on uh, biotech. So I think, and then for specific weapons, yeah, I, I get some of them out there that are uh, uh, 
I go into a little bit more detail how it works, uh, particularly in my, I have a, I have a few books about snipers and, and there I go into more detail, uh, details that any sniper has to go through. Uh, and, and people seem to like it, but other stuff, nah, how does it work? Well, what's the effect on the bad guy? What, what's the effect of the incoming on the good guys? Okay. What about you, Richard? You know, it's uh, when I was in the army, we had what was called the 80% solution, which was, you know, it's just good enough to get it done. And a lot of times when you, when you're uh, painting a scene for a reader, you don't have to get down to all the details, but you can say he walked into a military hospital and he smelled X and he saw Y. And then the reader will fill in all the rest all by themselves. So that's when it comes to level of details for me, you give just enough so that the people, the reader can fill, fills it in for the rest of them all by themselves. And readers like doing that because I'm sure there's some neurological response to this, because when the reader is using their brain to fill out the scene, I'm sure there's dopamine going all over the place, which they appreciate. Oh yeah. What about you, Josh? Uh, I kind of go a little in between. Um, like I, I'll kind of uh, nerd out, I guess, on a little bit of the gear because um, I'm kind of a gear uh, junkie. Um, I, I like I like to know nerd. what they're wearing and and um, what what the weapon can do. Um, but at the same time, I I leave, I leave a lot of stuff up to the imagination. Like 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 John was saying, uh, communications and stuff. Like I don't ever go into um, like uh, how the faster than light travel works or how the communications work or um they have these uh implanted um technology uh, communication basically this link that is everything it's their it's their computer it's their personal bank it's their communications everything but i, I really don't ever go into how they operate it i it's mostly just oh he tapped here and he tapped there but it's never a uh, this is exactly how it works type thing and it's just a lot of uh, kind of uh, suspension of disbelief. Um, and, you know, when it comes to the, the military gear, I think uh, I include a lot of that because a lot of times that will affect your tactics, like reloading or um, uh, like a lot of my uh, military stuff will have uh, full face helmets that have like eight uh, heads up displays where they'll see uh, uh battlefield information from like airborne drones or, or communication information or stuff like that. And I'll include that kind of stuff because that affects how they fight that affects their tactics. But a lot of the stuff that doesn't really affect any of that, I don't really ever go into detail on. Okay. Scott. Yeah. So um, I think like if you're writing like a present day military drama, you, some things you would be interesting to talk about the details. Like you might, it might be interesting to talk about how a tank works um, if you had a lot of knowledge in that, but, but you're not going to like describe how a car works or, you know, all those things. And I've read some of my, some of my favorite books in military sci-fi. They don't talk about the exact description of, of things. And, you know, most readers have a pretty strong imagination. So I think that's perfectly good for, to let them fill that in. So I say, if it's, entertaining and awesome, then put it in there, but it that's it, not a requirement. You don't have to do it. I just think you, you pick judiciously what, what affects the story the best and, and go with it. Okay. And uh, bringing up the rear, we got Mr. Weiner. 
I say include enough detail to get the job done, um, to get the reader to understand. But usually when I include any extra details, it's something that's going to come back and bite them in the end. So if they, if they, if their guns carry a thousand rounds, they're going to need a thousand and one. You're a bad, bad man. So I am, I am. I love torturing my characters. All right. (laughs) So uh, the next question, since we're speaking about details, how do you handle the details of daily life for the average soldier, soldier and mill SF MREs, late pay, cheating wise, et cetera, et cetera. Jonathan. I pay a lot of attention to this and I think this is vitally important. It's one thing to write about going off to battle, fighting the bad guys. But there's more to life than that. And I put in, sometimes I put in what uh, little bridge chapters uh, where something happens that everybody who's ever served in the military has, has done. You know, it's the guy who goes into the, the outhouse and it gets mortared and he, and he wanders out covered with paper and you know what. Um, it's, uh, the, the guy who met the girl at the bar and shows up, uh, 72 hours later as the unit is being deployed. Um, all these things that everybody who's served any time in the military, they have a lot of these stories. And when they read it, I get so many emails saying, Oh, that Lieutenant, that was my Lieutenant, or that happened to me, or I saw that happen. And they really get in, uh, vested into into the story, it's it's a sense of verisimilitude that I think is vital in bringing your in, in getting your reader to to really get into the story. I think they're very important. I think they need to be. Uh, I was going to say judiciously, but not really. I think all these things need to be in the story, and and they're all part of the characterization, if I could say, of the entire novel, not just of a single character. Although it does help with that. Okay, Richard. You know, I, I agree with everything John said, and uh, you know, these little kind of daily life slice of life moments are really what is going to let your reader know that the the soldiers and Marines are reading about aren't just drones walking around shooting things. And one, you know, one thing that mm-hmm. John and I did, we're we have a, a joint co-author book called Hell's Horizon. It will be out eventually. We're working with iTunes for uh, some uh, publishing issues with that. And like one of the things we both agreed on over dinner, um, right in front of a lot of people listening to us, was we called it the "I love you long time" scene. For those of you who've seen Full Metal Jacket, <laughs> so the story we have it, it involves two two separate armies fighting on a planet w- which is um, not really related to them. So you have like your East versus West. Um, think of your fold a gap fight, but down in Thailand. So. And we incorporated, well, what, um, we've got a whole bunch of these young men who are facing death all the time. Uh, do you think that they would try to incorporate, uh, try to get some sort of, uh, you know, a third, third country national support on one of the bases? And that became the, third I love you. Long time. Support. <laughs> right. She's keeping it. So, and, <laughs> so I, and so he and I, we, we've gone back and forth. Oh, shit, my computer's. He and I, can you still hear me? All right. He and I have gone back and forth quite a bit on just how to present this scene for the readers. And then my, my thoughts about how to make it funny. And we had lots of discussion about whether or not a, a a silicone marital aid needs to be in this scene. And then how to have it. (laughs) I don't know what a silicone marital aid is, but I want to know. 
Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but when readers finally get this scene, they're going to really enjoy it because it's like, yes, this absolutely would happen within this sort of environment. And yes, it's presented in a way that's funny and, you know, uh, not gross. Even so. All right. <laughs> Josh, how are you going to handle that? Uh, the level of detail. Josh, start with, start with Silicon Ment- or Marital Age if you can. <laughs> I was going to say, I think I need to include that in every story now. Um, no, but I, I think one of the things when you talk about uh, everyday life um, uh, from the military aspect, there's a lot of things of military uh, everyday life that are ridiculously boring. Hurry up and wait all the time. Um, getting, getting your gun from the armory or, or waiting to turn it back in and then having to strip all your magazines out to put all your bullets out. Um, like that stuff's interest. It's, it's not interesting uh, in the way of, of a reader reading your story will find interesting. Um, like, like Richard saying funny moments um, that soldiers can uh, relate to um, whether it's, you know, somebody that that messed up and has now had to face the wrath of the first sergeant or or whatever. I, I've done uh, a couple of those scenes where the jokester or somebody in your unit is has done something that's not egregious. It's not really uh, it's not really a uh, an infraction, but it, you're going to have some superiors looking at you going, this is what I'm talking to you about right now. Um, but I think you can combine a whole bunch of different um, like, for instance, weapons cleaning. Everybody knows what it means to clean your weapon in the military, but you can include that in, you know, a briefing or, you know, uh, some dinner or something like that. If they're on a ship and they're going somewhere and you need a bridge scene, you can have them do something like that and then have somebody get uh, CLP fluid everywhere and, and make a mess. And then the, the your sergeant's got to yell at them. But just making it making it uh, interesting or, uh, and a lot of stuff like that, I try to make it funny because I think a lot of the readers that are that are my readers will see that stuff and 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 feel a connection to. Oh yeah, we had a, a, a screw uh, screw up in our in our uh, platoon or squadron that was just like that, and uh, they'll there'll be a lot of personal resonance uh, in your story. That's not just uh, seeing the bullets fly. And if you don't think you did have that guy in your unit, chances are you were that guy. You were that guy. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> All right, Scott. So uh, what level of detail do you think about the life of the average soldier do you need to have to to make it more compelling Mill SF? I think you need just enough to, to give it the depth and resonance and, and kind of help suspend the disbelief. Give Because, you know, you just can't – if you're just constantly fighting, constantly on a mission um, – it, you know, and the only thing you're worried about is literally dying, you know, but you have a lot of other things to do, like, you know, whether or not you get in trouble with your, with your sergeant or, you know, if your wife's cheating on you or if, you know, all these different things. So, um, I think, I think it's useful. Obviously it's not the story, but I think it, it's, it's a good tool. I think to keep, to keep it real, some of that stuff could be, could be good in a story. And that goes with any genre. You got to have something to kind of break up the action. Okay. And uh, bringing up the rear on the uh, Silicon Marital Aid, see what you can do for us, Winder. Bringing up the rear on the (laughs) Silicon Marital Aid. Let's all say that together. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I got nothing to add. Everybody's hard to follow Silicon's. I mean, there's there's reasons for all this. Yeah, they, this was a really tough one to to, to bring up the rear. With. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> so I just We've want been you at to the know, mic for a while. 
And if that sounds bad, that I'm sure Winder is going to edit this out so I sound absolutely brilliant, like the world's smartest man, right? All right. Right. That'll totally I know happen. we're running a little bit long, so I've had to cut some questions, but this one I'm keeping because one of our listeners wanted me to ask. But since we also mentioned MREs, what do you think future soldiers will eat? I've seen everything from paste and pellets to not much has changed. So so how do you think that's going to evolve in a modern futurist well not modern futuristic military? Jonathan. Well, I think uh, I think there's two ways to go with it. One is the prepared food that's in a package, the MRE of the future, uh, probably very lightweight, uh, packed with nutrition. And the other is foods that are uh, essentially manufactured on the spot, uh, fabricated, whatever you want to call it. I've used both. However, the one thing I have kept, there's no reason why if you had fabricated food that it wouldn't taste good. However, in every one of my books, it tastes like crap. <laughs> yeah, all, that checks out. And they're all talking about uh, uh, back home, their, the pizza place or maybe a new food I've invented or something like that, and how they can't wait till they get back and, and go, uh, uh, go get real food. Okay. Uh, Richard? You know, I, I think whatever the food of the future is, soldiers will bitch about it. Uh, given, but one of the running jokes I have is that no matter how far in the future, um, military food service has still not managed to find a way to get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich into an MRE. So because they've been, they've worked on it for decades and I'm just going to have them never solve that problem. So. Okay. Josh. Um, regardless of where the MREs come from or what they consist of, you always have to have somebody that sneaks liquor somewhere. Um, and usually it needs to be, uh, if it's not cheap beer, it's gotta be expensive whiskey. Um, but I, I think, I think, uh, it, it, at least in the stories that I've written, um, you're going to be on, on, uh, a naval ship that's going to have pretend uh, you know usually they're going to have uh some chefs or, or or some kind of galley people that that are cooking and in, in kind of like a chow hall situation um whether the food's good or not some some people actually really do like army food i i i don't know why you would ever like say that but uh i do know some people that like army food i like i like chow hall like lunchroom food too but uh but not army food um I think for like MRE specifically, like we, we like we have technology now where you have these protein bars that'll give you everything you need, and you eat one and you're good for like eight hours. Um, I, I try to incorporate some stuff like that into the the combat kit, um, especially if they're going to be gone, uh, you know, for extended uh, duration. Uh, have a you know a couple protein bars or whatever that they eat that that will keep them going for a longer than that, you know, like. Uh, all day or 24 hours or, or something like that. Okay. And uh, next but not least, we have Scott. So how do you think um, food will evolve in the future? Yeah, I don't know if I have anything super productive to contribute to this, but I do have a, a comment about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because they're important. So I've been trying to convince my wife and all of my kids that grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are an actual thing. Right when I was growing up, just like a grilled cheese sandwich, except you grill them. That's peanut butter sandwich. And I think probably that will have to be the, the food for all of my stories going forth. They're all going to have grilled peanut butter sandwiches. Huh. How do they taste? Because I'm curious now. I've done oh, that. they're good. They're yeah. delicious. 
Yeah, they're solid. Okay. Uh, and Chris Winder, what a future food. I I think food is morale, and I don't oh, think that's point. ever going to change. Um, when you're having a bad day, a really rotten day, but you get to the chow hall or the mess tent, and they serve you a hamburger, and it turns out to be possibly the best hamburger you've I mean, ever had. Your day gets a little that. brighter. Uh, <laughs> 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 well, I've had some pretty good good burgers out in the field, um, It's and especially when somehow they managed to bring out ice cream. Um, but if you... I guess in science fiction, if you want to, if you want to show how badly your government hates you, you, yeah, you give them protein bars that taste like cardboard. You'll live, but you'll kind of wish you did. <laughs> yeah. So, so Richard, the army didn't like me enough because I never had ice cream in the field. Some of the saddest moments I've ever had is when we were in the field and the Marine Corps officers eat last, and you see the hot chow come out, and you've been out in the field for oh, God. three weeks, and you're just counting out how many scoops everybody's getting, and it gets for the sergeants and there's still food and it gets to the staff sergeant and they're out. Oof. Talk about a morale <laughs> drop. Right, yeah. So now that we've covered the broad strokes, what do you think makes a uh, good, bad or great military science fiction? Jonathan. I think the, the main point is how does it read? Are, are people excited to read it? Um, and, and that's like saying it's it's easy to say, but hard to do. I think that the story has got to be a good story. It's got to have a storyline that makes sense and draws in the readers. The characterization has to be on point, and the military has to be on point. Um, that's easy for me to say that. The question is, who can actually do that? Who can put those together and create a story that the reader wants to read and they're going to come back and read the next one that you write. And then the next one after that, I know that's a really wishy-washy answer, but that's basically what it is. Okay. Richard. You know, it, for me, if it's the story made you feel and it made you feel the things that you were expected to feel and you're glad to feel them. Like, well, let's say you go to an amusement park and you get on a roller coaster and if it's smooth and exciting and you get bumped around and you at the end, you walk off, you're like, whoa, that was amazing. You know, then that's the kind of thing. that's a great military science fiction story. If it makes you feel and you were excited about it, even though you're a little scared, a little sad along the way now, but if you get somebody on a, a roller coaster and it jerks to a halt halfway up the, uh, the first big thing, you're like, Oh, this is, this is awful. Or it's too slow going during the turns. You're like, this is, garbage why why am i bothering with this my and spending my time and at the end you know it, it it stops like three feet from where it's supposed to go and then it just inches forward real slow until you can finally get out so i may have gone crazy with that metaphor but you know if your book is delivering the feelings and emotions and excitement the way it's supposed to good job if you have failed along the way everyone the reader will know okay josh you gotta try to sound smart after that one I I really don't know how that's possible. Um, Be smart. I think as far as as far as bad go, uh, bad if if it's obviously that if it's obvious that the writer has never spent a, a, a time at all in the military and then also didn't do their research, and you have 
um, enlisted people that are talking back to like the captain of a warship, like that mm. completely ruins yeah. it for me. Like that will never happen in any way, shape or form in any military, whether it's air force or coast guard Marines or whatever, you're never going to have that. Um, so it, it's really, your, your story could pretty much be about anything. Uh, and you can have your military and you can have your small uh, squads and your spaceships or whatever. That's cool. But when you, you, you look at how the military actually functions as a structure, if you don't know how that works and you're just kind of saying this is mill sci-fi and going and, and doing all these things uh, that, that irritates the crap out of me. Um, if I don't care if you want to write mill sci-fi and you've never been in the military, like, like Scott does it, but Scott has done a lot of research and he's talked to a lot of people. He has some paramilitary experience. Like he knows how command structures work. Like that, that is imperative. If you're going to write a good, um, military sci-fi that that's just for me and there's i mean good is is good I, I, there could be people that that like a certain series of of mill sci-fi and don't like another one so i think it's subjective at that point but there's definitely bad out there and i to to not do the bad you need to pay attention to how you're actually writing it and just make sure that you're being correct in your presentation okay uh scott since he just told you how awesome you are you get to answer next Oh, thanks. That's awesome. Um, so I think uh, the the big thing is the ones that succeed are going to be people who, you know, know and love the military or and or uh, know and love the genre. I think the ones that are going to fail are people that see, hey, it looks like a lot of people are selling military sci-fi books. I think I'll write one, even though I've never read one in my entire life. You know, those 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 are stinkers almost every time. But if you, you know, if you can tell a good story. And this type of adventure, this type of uh, experience calls to you. I, I think that it, it'll it'll turn out well. I just you can really tell if somebody is vested in the genre. You just know. You can tell that it just it, it has good pacing, has good characters. Characterization is super important. Has all those things. Okay, and uh, Winder, I will not say that you're bringing up the rear this time. I promise. It's a rear yeah. ringer. <laughs> well i think uh everything everybody said and i think the characters need to matter if they're if the story is just a meat grinder and you're pretty sure everyone's gonna die and so psychologically you distance yourself from the characters then it ends up being a dud you can kill all the characters off but they they have to matter they 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 you have to you have to be able to root for them even if they're the bad guy. Agreed. They have to matter. Okay, that's a good answer. See, look at you making yourself sound smart. People aren't going to believe you're a marine. They're going to promote you right into the army. <laughs> so Ouch. we actually do get some letters from fans sometimes that say either Winder needs to step up his army jokes or I need to be nicer to him because it sometimes gets awkward. But you know, since I'm not going to be nicer, he really just needs to come with better better zingers. Uh, so. Uh, after the session ends, Winder, I want you to get with uh, Colonel Brazy, and he's going to give you some lessons. You <laughs> Marines got to stick together. All right. So, uh, got it. So we're, we're getting close to the finish line. So, how is mil uh, military science fiction today different than, say, it was in the '80s or '90s? And are those differences or lack thereof of them exciting or disappointing, Jonathan? I think it's kind of exciting because I, I am seeing a more variety. Um, I'm seeing military science fiction delve into some areas that, that maybe wasn't uh, earlier. In the 80s and 90s, and I'll push it back to 
uh, let's say I'll, I'll go back to Starship Troopers. Um, you know, I love the novel. It's a great novel. But it, it was kind of a, um, you know, a rah-rah uh, type novel, uh, which is what it was intended to be. Um, and I think that was, I think that's what, what followed through for the next, well, except for maybe the Forever War, was uh, that's a, that was an outlier. Um, but more things were in, into the Starship Troopers uh, vein. Now, I think because of the fact that there's far more novels being written in, in uh, military science fiction, when I wrote my first military SF, I think there were 565 novels at that point on Amazon in, in Space Marine. Now, I, I don't know, 6,000, 7,000. There's a lot more out there. And that means people are exploring new uh, new directions, and I think that's really great for the genre. Uh, so I find it kind of I find it rather exciting, and I, I find more and more stuff that I'm like, oh wow, I never thought of going that direction. Um, well, personally, I, I think it's just broader now; it's more inclusive, and I find it exciting. Okay, Richard. Well, you know. I think about what does what would get past the audience. If you look at 1970s uh, military sci-fi, and I think isn't that when um, the Forever War, yeah. Forever War came out? Yeah. yeah, 1970s where you had a disillusioned Vietnam vet writing disillusioned Vietnam vet things. And nowadays, if uh, if you if you tried to sell that kind of a story to readers today, they may be like, "What are you talking about? We're we're fighting terrorists." And protecting the country with our military is not, you know, burning draft cards and spitting on soldiers time anymore. So you would, you know, the, the, I think your readers out there are, would want a more favorable story for themselves uh, to, to read. So I think that would be a little different. And, you know, you always got to think, what is the reader's expectation and what do they kind of want from a story right now? And so, I mean, if you had a, uh, a story set on a space navy ship, and people are are, are getting sick with space flu. Probably not going to be a big seller right now because that's a little too close to home. So that's okay. um, I think you know that, that the story of a soldier fighting in a uh, fighting in a war in a military sci fi setting is always going to be viable as long as you tell it in an interesting way. Okay, what about you, Josh? Uh, yeah. So I'm going to probably be. Uh putting a big target on my back, uh, but I, I, I never read any of the classic sci-fi military sci-fi books. Like I've, I started um, Starship Troopers and never finished it. Cause I, I just didn't like that style of story and writing. Um, I, and I, I'm not a big fan of classic sci-fi in general, like uh, from 50s, 60s, 70s uh, and 80s. I I like more of the present day stuff. You mentioned the Forever War. I liked the Forever War. I didn't finish the series um, because I liked the book, but it it didn't really pull me in as much as it uh, as some. Uh, I I liked David Weber's stuff. Um, He he got got a little long winded uh, at the end of his Honor Harrington series. Um, But like we mentioned before, that's going to happen with your military characters because they progress in rank and then their activity goes down um but i i I think that it's become a lot more uh action oriented a lot more character oriented and a lot less theme pushed um like there's not like richard mentioned the anti-vietnam deal i don't think that i can think of a, a book that 
has a theme that push uh, pushes something like that in in recent memory. It's it's usually been about the character um, and what they're personally going through in their small corner of what's going on than the the deeper ramifications of of the war or the battle that they're fighting. Okay, Scott. So, um, the the way I see things changing is it just seems like it's getting better. I think we're getting more writers and, and the, the standard of, of storytelling is improving in writing and books. Whereas I think it's kind of falling in other types of genres. Like I love a lot of the modern movies and stuff like that, but they seem like basically just special effects service and in writing, it goes a little bit different the other way. So what I, I mean, all I can really say is that there's been several times where I kind of get burnt out because I read so much and like, when Josh introduced me to the Ember War series, um, I was in a very, I was writing a ton and not really enjoying reading that much. And I, and I read the first Ember War book and, and it was like being reborn. I mean, I just, I love it. And so I keep running into those every couple of years, I'll run into another, another great book series that's military sci-fi. And it just kind of, um, it just, it, it builds my confidence in, in the, in the, in it, you know, I'm, I'm having a migraine. So sometimes I talk like a dummy when I do, I'm sorry, but, um, I just, I'm really excited about it. I really love it as a reader and I'm glad that I'll be able to do it as, as a writer. And I kind of feel like I've come home, you know, to the genre. Okay. And what about you, Winder? How has the, um, genre changed and, uh, do you like the differences? Well, I'm I'm kind of in the same boat with Josh. I haven't read a lot of the a lot of the older stuff. I've read Starship Troopers, and that was cool, uh, but it was definitely theme based instead of instead of character based. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure I, I actually have an certain, opinion on this one. Guess I could go back I think and put them in a hole. Iconic pieces of any genre that whether you like it or not, you're supposed to say you do because everyone else says they do. Uh, of course, Josh was never good at following rules, as we, we've proven <laughs> earlier. So he's just like, yeah, no, that, that was garbage. I didn't like it. <laughs> but uh, luckily, the Pitchforge mob, mobs will come for him and not me. So speaking of <laughs> speaking of the classics, as we bring this to a close, and I know we've gone long, and I even cut some questions, but what are some of the iconic books in the field that you think everyone should read? Jonathan. Well, I would – we've already mentioned, too, I, I do think – uh, although I understand the comments made about, about uh, Starship Troopers, um, I think that was one of the first big ones really to hit and have an effect. So I would say that. I would also say The Forever War. I'd also say John Scalzi's um, uh, Old Man's War. Um, and then, wow, uh, it opens up. Uh, Marco Kluge, Richard Fox, I mean uh, – there are a lot of uh, David Weber. I, I I would go with his earlier honor Harrington's. Um, uh, geez, there's so much there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll pass it on to Richard and let him throw in some. All right, Richard. Yeah, you know, when it comes to iconic Starship Troopers, was it for me? And um, that I think that was really one of the the best ones. I read that. It's funny how that one worked for me. I read it right before I went to West Point for that first summer. Didn't really get it. Read it after that first summer. And I was like, oh, now there's a whole much more to it. And the more times I've read it, the more little nuances will kind of come out. 
Okay, Josh, redeem yourself here. <laughs> uh, iconic. Um, you know the the first one that pops into my head is uh, is Legionnaire, the uh, the first one in the Galaxy's Edge series. Um, that that book really, um, especially coming from one author that doesn't have military experience and another that does, um, they really kind of captured a lot of um, the modern day experience uh, over in Afghanistan and Iraq in that book and really kind of the, the chaotic atmosphere that is battle sometimes where you don't really have sometimes any clue of what's going on. And I think they did a really good job with that. Um, uh, you know, the, the Ember War really did a lot for uh, expansive uh combat but also focusing on on squad base and character based emotions um uh the old man's war was really good um that was another book that i liked the the first book but didn't read the the rest of the series marco Cluse, his frontline series is phenomenal um even though i really don't get the aliens uh they they have never really made any sense to me uh the the the, the books are phenomenal the characters are great Okay. Uh, what about you, Scott? So what uh, you know, recommended books in the field? Yeah. So, I mean, all of those books are fantastic. I read, I read, when I first read um, Starship Troopers, I mean, I read it straight through in one setting and I don't do that because I'm a kind of a slow reader. So of course I was working nights at a security job, but, but so great. All those books are excellent examples. They all bring something a little bit different. Um, but I think every one of them that you all have pointed out firmly, fit into what we've described as military science fiction in slightly different ways. Going back to the uh, similar but different thing that Richard said earlier in, in the uh, in the panel. Uh, the only one I would add that I really love is March Up Country by David like Weber that. and John Ringo. Okay. Yeah. And specifically, and I'm a huge audiobook addict, and March Up Country is read by Stefan Rednicki. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. And I mean, it's one of the few books that I've, I've listened to four or five times that whole series to four book series. It's absolutely fabulous. I would highly recommend it. Very gory. So okay. you've been warned people. <clears throat> and what about you winder? Uh, I've made my way about halfway through the galaxy's edge series. And uh, I think those will be classics. You know, they, they need to age 20, 30 more years, and then people will start referring to them over and over and over again. And this may seem like a little bit of butt kissing, Aww. but I like the reservist um, because of because of how how deep it gets into into the character's head and the character's experience. And several times while listening to it, I caught myself holding my breath, waiting for waiting for, oh, my gosh, is this going to get even worse? Um, and that's if the I, kind I of story. One, I if, if we're talking about Navy books, uh, I would say Jack Campbell's Lost Fleet. Absolutely. Oh, yes. oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Another. Mm. So, so three, uh, two books at least were, have been mentioned by, for about, who were written by Naval Academy grads at least. That's solid. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've got our priorities, right? <laughs> Jack, uh, Jack Campbell's uh, Lost Fleet are amazing. <laughs> And uh, he's also a dad of special needs kids, so we've we've talked about that kind of stuff. He's a he's a good guy overall, and he's been on the show, so you should you should listen to his interview, dear listener. All right, so we've we've been going for a long, long time, and uh, 
they don't love me anymore. So, dear listener, they're going to tell me how they can be found, and then we'll we'll wrap this up. So, Jonathan, how can listeners find you? And as usual, everything will be in the show notes. Well, uh, my website is jonathanbrazee.com, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-B-R-A-Z-E-E.com. Uh, I've got my Amazon page. I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Brazy and Facebook, uh, John, uh, Jonathan Brazy. I'm sensing a theme. What about you, Richard? Yeah, you can find my website, richardfoxauthor.com. I make it real difficult. And just come on to uh, Facebook and type in Richard Fox Author, and you can find my author page there, and I'm always happy to chat with folks. All right. Josh? Uh, yeah, my uh, super conf- uh uh, hard to, to get to Josh Hayes writer is my website, uh, made it complicated. I've got a Facebook group, uh, just, uh, you can search for Josh Hayes, uh, and it'll, it'll come up. Also a uh, keystroke medium is our, uh, show kind of like your show where we do, uh, some story stuff and we talk a lot about military sci-fi, um, on that show and that's keystrokemedium.com and just search in Facebook. We're the only keystroke medium out there. So if you Google us a hundred percent, you're going to find us. So uh, that, that, that's me. I don't have a Twitter or anything. I can't stand Twitter, but I'm on Facebook a lot. Okay. Scott, how can uh, listeners find you? Um, if you could check out scottmoonrider.com, uh, I have a Facebook group called the moon base and uh, keystroke medium. That's where I'm at. Uh, outstanding. And winder, where can they find you? I'm on Facebook and um, ChrisWinderBooks.com. All of those links will be in the show notes. And if you want to tell them that they did a great job on this interview, like we said, you just go to their Amazon page, click on any of the books with the pretty covers, and click the button to ring the bell. They really like that. I I think you meant all of the books is what you were trying to say. All of them. Right, right. All of them. All right. And you can find us on our website, (laughs) www.sfshenanigans.com. Our Twitter at SFS underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot Sierra underscore show. Our email is podcast at sfshenanigans.com. Unless you want to send hate mail, then it's Chris Winder at shenanigans.com. And then our Facebook group is facebook.com backslash groups backslash SF shenanigans. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Chris Winder and Seska Smalls, I'm J.R. Hanley, and this was the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that uh, archived episode that was in the uh, in the digital memory hole that we found. We thought you'd enjoy it. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the archive for the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back at our regular scheduled time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.